30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. At the tail end of the 19th century, the Austrian physician Joseph Brewer published a case study detailing his work with a patient referred to as Anna O. Anna suffered from a variety of symptoms that improved markedly after discussing her traumas with Brewer. Anna referred to this process as the talking cure, a term Brewer's protege, Sigmund Freud, would revisit in his development of psychoanalysis. Freud's work created a new map of the human mind, invoking metaphor, mythology, and the complex interrelations of different parts to make sense of the psychic terrain. Central to Freud's theories were the ideas of repression and expression. Repression is a tamping down, a shutting off, a disconnection from painful memories, emotions, experiences, and truths. The things we can't bear to consider, that we don't dare admit, not even to ourselves, become repressed, locked away in our mental dungeons, and left to languish. But these repressed parts rattle chains and kick up all manner of unpleasant symptoms in their quest for acknowledgement and acceptance. The process of recognizing these hidden aspects and releasing them is what Freud called expression. This podcast is a talking cure. It is my ongoing effort to explore the occult, that which is hidden or obscured by both cultural and personal repression. I seek out guests who I think can give voice to these topics and attempt to do my own soul-searching expression along the way. In this sense, therapy, art, and the occult all share a common aim, digging into the murky material of the unconscious and expressing it via talking, creative generation, and symbolic ritual actions. Whether the end result is a podcast, a painting, a sigil, or simply feeling heard, the ultimate goal is greater self-realization and acceptance. We're all trying to position the mirror so we might catch a fuller glimpse of that mysterious subjectivity we call the self. Of course, even though this is a very personal process, it helps to have an extra set of hands to hold up the mirror, which is why I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Vanessa Sinclair. Dr. Sinclair is the host of the Rendering Unconscious podcast and a founding member of Das Unbehagen, a free association for psychoanalysis. She sits on the International Advisory Board of the journal Psychoanalysis, Culture, and Society and is an editorial advisor for Parapraxis magazine. She is also the author of numerous books on psychoanalysis in the occult, edits the magazine The Fenris Wolf with her husband and collaborator Carl Abrahamson, and created the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference, which inspired River to host the retreat that will be the centerpiece of my Swedish quest. So, as I sit here and talk endlessly to a listener who I cannot see, 
gradually discovering the words and patterns and themes that reveal themselves in my discourse, let's dive deeper into the mysteries of what's actually happening beneath the surface of awareness as Dr. Vanessa Sinclair teaches us how to psychoanalyze. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Devin. Before we get started, I have a very important question. Is it okay that we can see each other right now, or is one of us supposed to lie on a couch and and look in the other direction? Well, that is preferable, but it's okay that we can see each other. Okay, I wanted to make sure that I was doing this properly. (laughs) What's our magic word going to be? Unconscious. Oh, one of my favorites. So good. All right, on the count of three. One, two, three. Unconscious. Unconscious. Okay. Now, we're going to be talking about psychoanalysts and the occult today, things that I know that you are quite passionate about, and I think which both deal with the unconscious in fascinating ways. For any listeners who aren't really sure what psychoanalysis is, if that's just old-fashioned therapy or what even is going on with that, can you just give us an introduction to what is psychoanalysis? Well, as you said, in classical psychoanalysis, people would lay on the couch. Um, That's the way Freud did it. Freud is the father of psychoanalysis and of modern psychology. Um, And of course, people think he's outdated, and in some ways he was, but in some of his ideas are still really useful. And the couch is one of those uh, ways of working that's really useful. Um, But of course, you don't have to be laying down to be in psychoanalysis, I believe. I feel like it can be done any many different ways. Um, uh, But the classical way is to use the couch. And a good reason for this is because it does allow you to get more into your unconscious mind. Because when you're sitting and looking at somebody, you're caught up in all these social cues Mm -hmm. and seeing how they're reacting to you. What do they think of what I'm saying? You might try to entertain the person or try to be funny or charming. And those can all be defensive measures to not actually allow you to do the work of really looking at yourself in your own mind. So if you're looking away from the analyst instead of at them, it can help you just focus on yourself by breaking that kind of social cue and help you just get into your mind more. And another reason that it's great is because really, when else do you lay down really only to go to sleep, you know, right? it helps you kind of get into that liminal space and that more dream sphere a little more readily than if you're sitting up at a desk, especially, or if it's the same computer, like I do online analysis now, um, since I've moved to Sweden. And of course, you can sit and look at somebody, but we're all working this way all the time. So it can kind of keep us in that work mind. And if I encourage people to like turn off the video, just have Mm -hmm. me in your headphones and lay down on a couch if you can, and just like focus on yourself rather than focusing on the screen. It's creating a different context and a different set of cues which sounds already like you're trying to move into the interior experience and not have, you know, a lot of therapy can kind of be like the gossip doctor where you go and you're like, here's how my week was. Here's what I consciously think about it. And then you sort of repeat that and that there, you know, I'm not putting down therapy, but I think often uh, that kind of allows us to just stay caught up in our bullshit and, you know, this week was good, that week was bad, I'm mad at this person, and the therapist is like, oh, I'm sorry you're mad at that person, rather Mm -hmm. than getting deeper. So um, how else does psychoanalysis differ and let you go towards that that unconscious? Yeah, well, you you alluded to it again. 
Um, that's a big difference between psychology or other forms of therapy and psychoanalysis that often when you see, and most people don't even know that these are different things, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the mental health realm, we have all these different ways of working, but most people, they just want to help, you know, <laughs> yeah. they don't know what all these different ways of working are. Um, but an analyst will kind of take a step back and not be so directive, whereas a therapist or a psychologist might be more like trying to give you advice or different ways of working or things that you can do to help yourself feel better. Like when I was in, I went, I have a doctorate in psychology, so I learned all of that. Um, and, you know, they would say things like, well, it's proven to help depression if you go on a walk three times a week and things like that. And it's like, yes, that's true. But like, then what? Like, why are you depressed in the first place? It's not just because right. you're not walking. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so while those things are great, and I think I think now you can find everything like that online, like you, yeah. people know how to like cope through these kinds of things. Like, of course, you should exercise and meditate and do breathing exercises. We know all of these things, you know. But like, what, why are we having all these stresses in the first place? And psychoanalysis, I feel like, is you carving out this kind of hour one to multiple times a week? Freud worked with people six days a week, but he also didn't work with them as long. Like now people mm-hmm. are in analysis for years, but he would see someone for a few months, but like six days a week. So they just right. really focus on it and like get the work done. And now we drag it out longer. But um, I see people anywhere right now between one and three times a week. Um, and yeah, it's like you carving that time out for yourself so that you can reflect on your mind, um, and see the kind of inner workings and learn to piece them together. And my job as an analyst isn't to kind of tell you what to do, but maybe ask questions Mm -hmm. or repeat words that I hear you saying over and over again, and just kind of question, say the same word, but in a questioning way, just to get you Mm. to think about why am I using that word? Or if you have people have certain narratives about themselves, where they're like, I'm like this and I'm like that. And it's like, you know, why do you think that? Like people have such like determined narratives about themselves, but it's like, where did that narrative come from? Like who told you you were like that, you know? And starting to parse those things apart and question these kind of narratives we tell ourselves rather than reinforcing them like you were describing, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's a connection that you just made there that's really fascinating about both words and then the collections of words or stories that we have about ourselves. I think most people have had at some point where like a phrase gets kind of stuck in their vocabulary and they keep being like, oh, well, you know, it's not the end of the world. And suddenly you become conscious of it. and You're like, oh, my God, like, why do I keep saying this one phrase? Why am I, you know, oh, that's fire. Or like, you know, I'm just going to this expression over and over. And I think we similarly get caught up in these narratives of, oh, this is happening because X. Like, And you don't realize that there's a deeper level, that unconscious level, which is where these patterns are emerging from. And if you just stay at that surface and you're just kind of caught on those, you're only getting a very shallow representation of who you are and missing out on the the depths. Absolutely. And I often encourage people when they're telling their narrative of like, this is what I did at work today and I'm really Mm -hmm. mad at so-and-so or my partner pissed me off or whatever. If there's some sort of memory or bodily sensation or just kind Mm -hmm. of all these other things come into our mind while we're telling these stories and you can actually learn to like stop yourself from this like narrative that you're saying and be like, for some reason, this person's popping up in my head. And it's like, let's go in that tangent and see where it leads us. You know, we, we feel like we're trained to think we need to stay in these kind of narratives 
and like be very unidirectional. But actually, if you can learn to access all those other things that are coming in, then you actually just learn much more about your mind and how how it works because we really have tunnel vision. We're trained to have tunnel vision Mm -hmm. and there's so much more going on. And that's why people also say like, what would you even talk about every day? your analyst or, or three days a week or five days a week or whatever. And it's like that so much happens in a day, especially when you learn to look at your mind more and you have all these memories from childhood pop up and fantasies and dream fragments and things are happening all the time. And when you do set that site an hour a day like that, then you end up like kind of slowing down a little bit and you're able to see all of those things and take them in more than you usually don't. So it ends up, uh, yeah, you just learn so much about yourself. I When I did psychoanalysis, I've had three analyses. And the first one I did, it was just like, I mean, it's completely life-changing. It was so amazing to like learn how all of these things are connected. Tell us about that. When did when did you first approach uh, psychoanalysis and what was your experience like? Um, well, I went to grad school. I'm from Miami and um, I went to a grad school in Fort Lauderdale, so just near Miami. And uh, when I went to grad school, I was kind of reading Freud and Jung and and Stanislav Grof, Mm -hmm. who I love. And I was thinking, I didn't expect Stanislav Grof to be in there, (laughs) but I thought (laughs) Freud and Jung would be taught, you know? Um, And, you know, when I got to the program, it was just like, what is this? It's all like totally all behavioral and CBT. And like, like I said, I think those skills can be really helpful. Like, okay, yeah, if I go on a walk three times a week, I'll feel less depressed. But like, there's more to humans than that. You know? Right. <laughs> so like, where, where's all the rest of it? Where's the unconscious, basically? Where's the unconscious here in the school? Um, and luckily, there was like, two analysts from New York that had retired in Florida and basically had an office at the school in exchange for like teaching an elective. So I like attached myself to them. But I had the idea because I was thinking of Freud and Young and psychoanalysis going in that like in order to become a therapist or psychologist, you have to go through therapy, right? Like it's a pretty good idea. But it's not the case, you know, they don't require it, Um, which I guess like, I don't know, ethically, can you require that? But like, if you're going to be a psychologist, probably, yeah, you should. Yeah, yeah, I think so. (laughs) So it's like, if you're going to help other people look at their shit, you should look at your shit first. Oh, am I allowed to curse? You could totally curse, yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) I just realized, oops, maybe I'm not supposed to. Um, Yeah, There's basically no rules. This is a wizard podcast. We're just exploring wherever we explore. That's how my podcast is. You'll have to yeah. come on mine next or after your trip, maybe, because I'm sure you're busy. Um, yeah, so I just thought, like, we have to go to therapy in order to become a, a therapist. But it wasn't the case. So I sought out analysis myself. And there was, like, a list that you could get in the office of, like, therapists that would work at a reduced fee f- with students, you know? Mm, and mm-hmm. one of them was someone who was in analytic training in Miami. So I ended up picking him and I literally went four times a week. I was like one of his training cases. It was like $10 a session because I was fucking broke and didn't have any Yeah, money. good deal. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I highly recommend like people go to an institute and, and see someone who's in training because honestly, it was the best analysis I had. I had two after that. Um, and I think because he was in training, he really didn't talk a lot. And like people get frustrated with that, but it's actually so good when your analyst doesn't talk a lot because mm. all it does is like, when they talk too much, they're just like inserting themselves into your work. And at the right. end of the day, you just need to learn to do your work. So I really try to be as minimal as possible. And I think I model myself on him. And I don't think he's still like that because I've sent other people to him with like friends in Miami that were looking for an analyst and they did not like him so much. But I think maybe since he's done training, 
you got a little more, you know, self, uh, whatever. <laughs> that's, that's the danger, right? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like you want to learn new skills and you want to get better at your craft, but also you can get caught up in the textbooks and the quote unquote right way to do it and then lose some of that initial raw intuition and bringing yourself to it rather than, oh, wait, let me go look at the table and see which is the technique to use in this moment. Yeah. And then also the older, the other two analyses I had were, um, one was my trainee analysis when I was at an institute in New York, um, which was like a very classical institute. And, you know, it was this old guy in New York or whatever. It was like super wealthy psychiatrist and yeah, he just like, I mean, he just like talked all the time. You know, mm. <laughs> I was like, can you please stop talking? This is my analysis. Yeah. But you just like talk. He liked to chat and talk theory and all this stuff. I'm like, this just is an analysis. So. Yeah. Um, and luckily I already had one, so I knew what it should be like. And then uh, I was frustrated with that. So when I left the Institute, then I got a Lacanian analyst that was like, mm-hmm. I got really into Lacan. Mm-hmm. And I was good at first too, but it's the same thing happened. I think maybe because you're in the field, I'm in the field. Then they kind of like want to teach you like right. a theory. And I'm like, no, no, I just want to work on this, you know? Yeah. Um, so that I found that kind of frustrating as well. And also I didn't like the cut session so much. It's like when it worked, it, it really worked and it felt like, you know, getting slapped in the face with this kind of epiphany and it was really good. But like once that happened a few times, then I don't know, I kind of ended up like getting annoyed with the analyst and like wanting to end session. And I would just say things in a certain way that I knew would make her end the session. And then, yeah, mm. it just kind of sabotaged my own treatment. So, yeah. No, I know what you're saying, though. The, um, when I go, because I'm, I'm also a hypnotherapist, and when I go see another hypnotherapist, often I don't, I, you know, I'm not trying to hide per se, but I don't want to have that be part of the conversation because I just want to be treated like any other client. I want to see what they're doing. I don't want to have them take shortcuts and go, oh, well, you're a hypnotist. You probably know this. It's like, pretend like I don't know anything. And the easiest way for you to pretend is if you don't know that I know anything and <laughs> then I can just experience that fully. The thought that came to mind a moment ago is the the style of psychology that Freud and and both Freud and Jung pioneered is often referred to as depth psychology. And I think that there's depth in terms of getting deeper into the unconscious, but there's also just deeper into the experience. And if you think about visiting an old friend that you haven't seen in a while and you go get lunch, you're going to have a pretty surface level. What's been going on in your life? This is what's been going on with me. It's good to see you. Okay, goodbye. Whereas if you went on a vacation with that person for two weeks and had tons and tons of conversations, you're going to get a lot deeper past, oh, things are good, and get into, actually, you know, I'm struggling with this, or, oh, I read this book. It was so important last year. What have you been reading? And you'll just go further. So there's an interesting idea there of just giving people more space to dig in and, you know, run out of surface level things to say. So you have to get a little bit tangential. Absolutely. I think meeting more than once a week is key to that, even if it's just twice. Because if you have one session a week, you can easily just tell people what you did last week. And that's the end of your session, you know. But if you have another one, then you just met two days ago, then you can't do that. Right. So you're kind of forced, especially when you're starting out in the process, you're kind of forced to get into some deeper stuff. Yeah. So I think it's great. And yeah, and also the I always recommend people come multiple times because this is an issue you're having. Might as well just focus on it, like work on right. it, 
you know, <laughs> like yeah. let's work on it and just do the work rather than like drawing it out for, you know, years and years. Yeah. And those issues are squirmy and you're not going to, you know, epiphanies are great, but being able to come back and check in on it, I think is, is really uh, an essential aspect. Now, uh, we're going to switch gears back and forth between these two lanes, but uh, I'm curious, where did your interest uh, and experiences with the occult begin? Oh, I mean, I guess like most of us childhood, you know, Mm -hmm. just like thinking the whole world was magic when I was little. And then at some point that gets like trained out of you and you're told that's like childish and you're not supposed to think like that or you're being adolescent or whatever. And then, you know, for me, I became like, oh, I got to go to school and become a doctor and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, be a professional or whatever. And I did that. And then, yeah, and then I just got back into it. I mean, from Miami, so I was always around, like, I had a lot of friends whose family were Santeria and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I was in New York, actually, Catland opened. And that was yep. such a great hotspot, like 2012, yeah. 2013, when Phil opened that. With Joe. And um, yeah, that really actually sparked like a lot of my magical friendships because before that I was like kind of like I always had an altar and it had like various levels of being immersed in it or not. But I was always kind of like a solo, solo practitioner where I'd read on my own and things, but I never mm-hmm. really had like a group um, practice. And then meeting a lot of people at Catland, um, like filling all them. That really helped. Uh, and those are all still like my most magical friendships. Like I met Kai Armand and Langston Khan and Caitlin Foisey and Damon Stang and like so many different people there. Yeah. And that was really, that was really, really, really a good magical time. Catlin was really fun for a couple of years there. Like really fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of my great regrets is that I moved to New York in 2013 and like would come in and browse Catland, but was, I don't know, like, thought that I was too busy just trying to get settled into New York that I, I guess I was didn't nervous about. I didn't come to the parties. I feel so <laughs> stupid about it. Good. <laughs> I heard. I know. I know. Uh, Phil was you know. actually in one of my classes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, I wasn't the teacher, but I was a guest teacher in a class at the new school. Yeah. And Phil was one of the students. So when I came into Catlin, he was like, Dr. Sinclair. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I remembered him immediately because he was the only student that asked like really good questions. I was like, oh, this guy's smart, you know? Yeah. Um, so I knew who he was instantly. <laughs> well, and I think you bring up such an important point about community. Like, I think with a lot of us exploring the occult, we do through books and the things that we're interested in and we're alone in our bedroom exploring these. And then as we start to practice, it's a little bit awkward and embarrassing to try and do this weird thing called magic. So it's a little bit private. Our altars in our home and our magical practices are based on our own desires and we don't necessarily want to broadcast that all the time. And then it's an important step when you start to have other people where you can say, hey, let's talk about these things and what are your experiences like and what are you interested in? And I think, you know, historically magic was very much something that was based in the community and the worldview that you were surrounded by. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's definitely more in the culture now, but like, you know, even 15 years ago, it wasn't so much. So it's like grown a lot in that way where you can find more people. That's why I respect people like Carl so much. He's been like talking about this stuff since like the 80s, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. really, yeah, it's not easy. It wasn't easy to do, you know? Yeah. No, things that were on the fringe used to be more on the fringe. And now we're kind of just inundated with <laughs> oh whatever you're into yeah there's witch a hashtag talk. for that it goes, yeah which <laughs> talk exactly just goes on and on um so 
starting with you know with your magical childhood, was there a particular style of magic or vein that you felt drawn to? Did you consider yourself more of a you know a thalamite or a chaos magician, or was there something that kind of resonated with you and really opened the door not early have on? Those words. I remember I had the Buck like Buckland Book of Witchcraft mm-hmm. that I got probably at Barnes and Noble or Borders. It's an important <laughs> That's the only place yep. you could get books. <laughs> Yeah. In Miami, there's no like, I mean, there's plenty of like occult shops, but they're like Santeria shops. Yeah. There's no like occult shop like Catland, you know? Mm-hmm. So like my references were mostly Santeria. And then for me, I had like, I had like the little like Cunningham's Book of Herbs, <laughs> like mm-hmm. Buckland Book of Witchcraft that like got like, like I said, like Borders or Barnes and Noble, somewhere at the mall, you know? Yeah. Um, but that that's it. I was just more like always in trees, like Miami's like like really chaotic with the weather, you know, it's a tropical place. Mm-hmm. There's constantly like really bright sun and then like crazy heavy rainstorms like every day in the summer where it's just like torrential downpours. And then there's all these crazy little insects and bugs and like lightning bugs that come out. And I was more like talking to the animals, you know, <laughs> like, mm. I had like little like animal friends and I would watch the caterpillars turn into butterflies. And there was this like giant, banyan tree in our backyard which thankfully is protected because it's like so old so they haven't torn it down I've, I've driven by there when i visited lately yeah so it's still there but i would like make little tree houses in the banyan tree and like talk to invisible things that were hanging around me yeah. you know like talk to the spirits or whatever but i didn't have any reference for it it was just me and my like imaginary imaginary world you know yeah absolutely um, for me, one of the first ways that I got introduced was through uh, Grant Morrison and his comic writing and his interviews where he was talking about chaos magic. And it was the first time I'd heard magic explained in kind of psychological terms of, you know, you're not expecting a physical, you can touch it with your hand demon to appear. You're teaching yourself to hallucinate something from your inner world so you can kind of grapple with it in a different way. And that really resonated with me, um, that kind of psychological model of magic. And I feel like in the last few decades, people have kind of moved away from that a little bit and are looking more to kind of traditional and perhaps animist models in other ways and sometimes see that psychological model as limiting. Um, As somebody who works in psychology and is also in invested in the occult. How do you think of your models and the ways that they kind of flow between the two? Well, I'll say Carl's definitely on the psychological side of things. Yeah, mm-hmm. He's people always like is kind of talking to projections of themselves when they're like talking to deities and stuff. And I would say um, when I was more earliest psychologist, I would think more that way, like everything is psychology. And then when I started working with people more like Santeria, getting initiated in Kimbanda and Voodoo and stuff, I was like, something's out there. You know? <laughs> 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 things out there, you know. And then I started changing my mind and thinking, why would humans be the only kind of sentient things around? Of course, there could mm-hmm. be invisible things that we don't see that are sentient around too, you know, just because our senses are limited kind of thing. Um, but my basic go-to is like, I think whatever works for people is great, you know? So like yeah. if you believe it's a psychological model and that works for you, great. Or if you believe you're talking to your dead grandmother, great. Or if you believe you're talking to an Orisha, great. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I think it's all great. And I think all these different ways are totally valid and that people should just move in the way that feels best for them, you know? 
Yeah, I don't absolutely. Think the psychological model would be limited, and I don't think that yeah, believing that uh, entities are out there would be limited. You know, people should do whatever whatever works for them. And I think there is more overlap than people often suspect because I can get really angry and experience that. You can get really angry and experience that. And there's probably something that unites those things, even though those are two personal experiences. We're both connecting to this larger human experience of anger. And so if we're thinking of that in terms of a deity or something like that, then there is something that is both experienced subjectively and personally, but is beyond that. And who knows where the, uh, you know, we're only seeing one side, right? When it like kind of penetrates into our experience, that's what we're aware of. But who knows what's on the back end and how how vast it is. Yeah. And I don't think I mean, I think humans really do have a very limited understanding, as even though we imagine we don't. <laughs> We're so um, smart. What are you talking about, Vanessa? Yeah, we've got it all figured out. <laughs> Not like um, last year when we didn't know shit. This year, we've really <laughs> dialed it in. Yeah, we're doing a great job with taking care of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah i just and i really don't think we understand how consciousness works you know yeah. because like a lot of psychologists or psychoanalysts would be like no like you have your human consciousness and there's no way you can actually tap into what somebody else is experiencing uh, that's just your own imagination uh, but where Freud, for example, was doing like thought transference exper- experiments mm-hmm. with his daughter and Sandor Ferenzi for like till the end of his life, you know. So he was yeah. the, he he said for sure you could transfer thoughts to other people. Yeah. So who knows? And I've had experiences like someone I was dating that's very magical and potent, you know, when they were like on uh, the other side of the ocean, you know, things felt different. And it's like, as soon as they came back to the continent, I was like instantly aware that they were like in town and then they would call and I'd be like, oh, just like new. Or everybody has that experience where like, Absolutely. you're thinking of someone and all of a sudden they call or you get a message, you know? And yeah. like, so how does that work, you know? Strange phenomenon, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one of the questions that I was curious about with, you know, knowing we we're going to discuss psychoanalysis is how you see and how maybe the kind of current field sees Freud, because I think there's often a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think that was one of the things that when I was learning about magic and historical practices from early on, it was always couched in this, well, these are these silly superstitions, so none of this is real. And I'm like, well, maybe there's some silly superstitions, but a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy doing this. So instead of just dismissing the whole thing, why don't we see what's in there that maybe you know, just because one thing is off doesn't mean the whole thing's off. And I feel like that's kind of become the attitude around Freud, where it's like, oh my God, Freud, like, you know, he's this man and he's got these limited views that we don't agree with anymore. So what can he tell me? But I think there was a lot of original ideas that have obviously shaped this entire field and a lot of different ways that you're discussing that. Yeah. That don't just focus on behaviorism and how do we just put a bandaid on the wound, but where does the wound come from? So what do you feel like your relation is to Freud's work? Well, even with his flaws, I love, I love Freud and you know, he definitely was a man of his time uh, because we all are like, I'm sure (laughs) a hundred years from now are going to be like, like, whoa, Vanessa thought this, whatever, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's like, we are all part of our time and that's going to happen to everyone. But uh, he's definitely a man of his time, but he was also very radical at his time. And I think the thing that I take from Freud, I, I like, I love Freud. I love Jung. I love Lacan. I love all these thinkers. But the way, point I've gotten to now is like, 
I like thinking less about what their theory actually said and thinking more about like what they did as a person, you know? And I think Mm. from Freud, we can learn what not to do as far as like muting your own ideas when you get pushback from the culture, because Freud was like really radical. And like when he started his ideas, you know, he, he worked with Charcot, you know, and uh, trained under him. But like then, like when they had the hysterics, you know, at the hospital that Charcot was was running, you know, the doctors like literally would like carve these women, you know, <laughs> they were, like mm-hmm. literally like physically do things like that, like stick something through their arm and be like, see, they don't feel it. You know, yeah. I mean, like crazy stuff. And then Freud was like, maybe we should listen to them. (laughs) Maybe we should listen to what they're saying, you know, (laughs) instead of just like, hey, why do they act like this when we torture them? Let's not, let's just like stick them in a bath water and like leave them there for 12 hours and see if that Mm -hmm. fixes it. (laughs) Like they were doing like really crazy stuff by today's standards that hopefully nobody would ever do. Um, But who knows? (laughs) And so like him just like listening to people's words and like actually thinking like, Maybe what they're saying has meaning. And especially, like, let's not forget, like, most of these people were women that people didn't really listen to. You know, they mm-hmm. still don't, but they really didn't then. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was actually was like, let's listen to these women and, like, took what they said seriously. Um, and these are big shifts, you know. And then when they were talking about sexual abuse that was happening to them by their fathers and uncles and things, mm-hmm. he took that seriously. And he was like, wow, there's, a, there's an epidemic of sexual abuse going on. And he got yeah. such a backlash to that people saying that's not possible that these posh because they you know these posh people they could never do something yeah. like that and then he changed men of society theory. how dare yeah. they yeah yeah exactly that he changed his theory and he backpedaled on it and he said well mm. maybe they imagined that they were abused and then like he came up with theories around that and that's i think a big mistake that he made and that he does get a lot of flack for that deservedly but you know he was also a new doctor a young doctor coming up with these ideas and like all of his you know mentors were like you can't do that you know so yeah so yeah so he backpedaled so I think for him I take him as a model it's like don't do that and he kept all of his thought experiments like I mentioned secret and private and he Mm. really wanted to make psychoanalysis a science which I don't know that Mm. it really is (laughs) but he really wanted it to be like professional and something that was taken seriously and that was that's also very of the times you know they were trying to get away from the church and all this like superstition and things like that and trying to make everything scientific but if we think about what you just said i think there's a really important point here that yes this is often where culture is it's like the scientists are the cool kids at the table and everyone wants to impress them and be validated by their approval and yet at the scientist table are the respected doctors who are like, ah, yes, there's too many bad vibrations in the woman's uterus, so you must carve it out and replace (laughs) it with honey. And it's like total nonsense that we're horrified by. But somehow I think we frequently give science a pass and we're like, oh, but that's how we learn and we improve and ignore the constant repetitive pattern of ego and hubris that is driving people to be incredibly confident in horrifyingly bad ideas. I remember visiting um, the Museum of Pharmacy or whatever it's called in New Orleans, and they have a whole section on early medicine and stuff around um, abortion, contraception, and, and pregnancy. And the men of science just kind of barged in and took all of this away from the midwives that have been doing it with a much higher success rate for a long time and invented these insane things that were just 
d- disasters. Like they were inventing weird gadgets to help apply chloroform because that was more scientific and rigorous when like a cloth over the face was just so much safer and killed so many less people. But no, my invention, I patented. So yeah, I think we're always getting things wrong and having a little bit of humility and being able to say, yeah, some of what I'm doing is probably not fully accurate, but we're only going to find out by being curious about what that part might be and not insisting we know. Yeah. No, totally. And these men of science have done a lot of problematic things. <laughs> um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's what, that's my big takeaway from Freud as a person. Um, mm-hmm. Don't 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 say what you think people want you to say in order to kind of have a good reputation and then do your own secret practices in the right. in the dark with your friends. You know? <laughs> like. <laughs> Maybe, maybe nowadays at least. I mean, definitely do have your own secret practices to do in the dark with your <laughs> yeah. friends. That's where but all the fun shame. stuff happens. Don't do it shame. Yeah, but don't, but don't be ashamed <laughs> of it. <laughs> don't feel shamed yeah. into doing it, especially if it's part of your field like that and you want it to be part of your work. If you're doing experiments like thought experience and you see they work, then tell people that because a lot of people, are there, it's like, it's like, that's why I, I mean, there's many reasons I started talking about the occult more openly, but like, that's one of them. It's like literally every patient that comes in it's like oh you might think this is crazy but you know i noticed this in this synchronicity they don't use that word but they talk about synchronicities or like oh like i saw you know a ghost of my dead relative whatever and everybody's so nervous and they think that i'm going to think they're crazy and they're worried that Mm -hmm. you know they can't talk to doctors about that they're going to lock them up or try to medicate them you know and uh, it's a big problem and you know people need to like literally everyone has had some sort of experience that they can't explain uncanny experience or whatever yep. so like why pathologize them why don't why don't we normalize mm-hmm. that that's part of human experience life is weird you know yeah I think <laughs> I think there's an idea here about accepting those experiences but remaining curious about them because I always found uh, the the flip side of that you know occult bookshelf over at borders was those like dream dictionary books and it's like oh, if you yeah. have a raven in your dream it means this and if you have a this <laughs> and I think we do the same thing with astrology and some of these other systems where we get very oh I found a practitioner who's into that stuff but they're very dogmatic about what that means and how to solve it as opposed to working with the individual because what a raven means to one person is going to be very different depending on the culture you grew up and your personal. That could be a power symbol or a bad omen. It's it's very subjective, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely go with the individual experience. Yeah. So with uh, you straddle these two worlds of psychoanalysis and the occult, um, but you also now are straddling two cultural experiences, uh, having met your husband, Carl, who just appeared on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to Catland, and then relocated to Sweden. Uh, what has your experience been like uh, switching cultures in that way? It's not easy to move cultures in general. Like, it's, I, I encourage people to do it, but mm-hmm. you know, it's an adjustment and people need to be nice to immigrants. That, that yeah. I will say right off the bat. And people say yeah. a lot of shitty things about immigrants on the news and the media and stuff. And like, it's, it's not a big deal right to now. Move. It's hard. Yeah. And anybody who's done it is like, you know, they didn't do it flippantly. Um, especially like I did it because I got married, but especially when people are fleeing war or something like, yeah. They didn't want to leave home, you know. They had to, mm-hmm. so like, be nice. Um, but uh, this wasn't a vicious conspiracy to invade your country yeah, and take the job that you didn't want to do. do. They're just trying to survive. Yeah. <laughs> so like, don't be mean. Just don't be mean. So yeah, it's Sweden's like 
more similar in certain ways that I wouldn't have expected only because of the pervasiveness of American media, which I didn't understand Mm -hmm. living in America. Like, uh, of course in America we have American media, but like the whole world does. (laughs) Like like everyone is watching these movies. Everyone Mm -hmm. watched Barbie and Oppenheimer this weekend, not just people in America. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, that was really shocking to me, which now I'm like, duh, of course, but like, I didn't know how pervasive it was. Um, and all the Swedes know English because they watch American media. Yeah. So that's made it harder to learn Swedish because whenever I'm like fumbling with words, people just start speaking English to me. Yeah. It makes it harder to learn, but, uh, but it's also handy. Def- definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a lot calmer in Sweden. It's not as stressful as being in the States. It's great to know that you can go to a doctor if you need to. <laughs> yeah. Um, even though I was like a psychologist with a private practice that accepted health insurance in New York, I never had insurance, you know? mm. <laughs> so <laughs> it's nice to be insured. All sorts of things, like we bought a house and like the difference in like the whole idea around like property taxes and stuff like that. I mean, it's a whole different world. Like in the States, you'll pay like thousands and thousands of dollars a year property taxes and ours is like $1,000 a year. You know, it's like yeah. nothing for like the property and insurance and everything. They like... Biggest difference, I would say, is that in Sweden, they actually seem to have a governing system that's trying to make citizens be able to live <laughs> mm. and like have a nice quality of life. So they try yeah. to like, like regulation, they regulate things so that you're not constantly being like taken advantage of like everywhere you go. <laughs> oh, not just treat you like cattle and try and uh, extract capital from every single transaction that you have to make. <laughs> Yeah, so that's like huh. really nice. Wow, what <laughs> like, a weird idea. Me when I got here, I was like, oh, is that what a government is for? Because I honestly did not understand what what good governments do. Like, what, what does the government do that is helping me, you know, <laughs> before? Yeah. And now I'm like, oh, I see. Okay, that's what they do. It's like, they give you health care. They let you go to school for free, you know, and good education. You can be a medical doctor and not pay for school here. Yeah. And then that it's like they've regulated everything to make things like affordable. Like we live in a very like working class town where most people are employed in like the factories around here. Mm-hmm. And like everybody has a little house and a little car and like and a nice little life. Like you can have a nice yeah. life as a working class job. And everybody gets five weeks of vacation paid if you have like a full-time job. So like, yeah, all the factory workers right now, the whole town's basically closed down in that way because everybody's on vacation for a month. (laughs) Yeah. I think we got a glimpse of that in the US with the pandemic, but it would be fascinating to see just, just like one change. If it's like I can wave my magic wand and now we all get five weeks of vacation and just what that would do for the collective psyche because more and more, I just notice the way that animosity has seeped into everything. That when you go to a store, they're kind of treating you like they don't want you there and they don't care about you. And even though you're at the grocery store and there's 15 possible lanes that could be <laughs> open, there's only one that's open. And so everyone that goes through that lane is exhausted and annoyed by the time they get to the front. And then the poor cashier who's had to deal with all of these people isn't exactly smiling and asking, how's your day? It just seeps in around the edges. It's really... Yeah. Everyone uh, treats you like you're a problem for asking them to do their job, which they're yeah. understandably exhausted by because they're totally understaffed and overworked. It's yeah. it's a bad system. No, and I, I, I don't miss that at all. Also, a nice thing about Sweden is that like it's kind of like living in the future 
as far as like when I didn't know this when I moved, but if I'm in the U.S. for more than 36 days, then I have to pay taxes in the U.S. that year. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. know that. So, so I learned that because my dad got sick in 2019 and I was in the U.S. for like six weeks taking care of him. And then, yeah, and then I found that out. I had to pay taxes there that year. Whew. So I won't do that again. When I had to pay the taxes, I had to mail a check to the IRS from Sweden. And Carl was like, whoa, what's that? A checkbook? And he's like, let me see it. And he's like, I haven't seen one of these since the 80s. You know, and it's like they, they like literally haven't had checks here since the 80s. Or like when I use my American credit card or bank card here, sometimes the receipt prints out, you have to sign like an actual physical signature. Uh, and the cashiers are always like, what is this? Like, they don't know what to do with it. And I'm like, it's an American card. I have to sign. And they're like, what? And Carl's what? like, yeah, no one signed anything here since like the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> Everything is like just digital pin cards they have like an app that's like venmo but you can use it in like every store it's called a swish Mm -hmm. app so you can like shop with an app in stores and stuff so they're kind of like in the future in that regard i definitely like sweden better i'll say that (laughs) transition is difficult (laughs) yeah well i think that's um the flip side of what we were talking about where whenever i've traveled and i'm like frustrated that you know my spanish or in a moment my my swedish isn't as good as you know everyone's english is it's like well they grew up listening to american music english lyrics you know all of this was just there and part of that world whereas americans will be like i'm not going to watch something with subtitles yeah. and that closes us off because then we only have this american view of american things and we're told we're the most advanced country in the world but we're not watching you know swedish television and chinese television and going hey wait a minute that system seems like it's working better than ours. How come that person didn't have to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why they encourage people not to watch other things. So they keep thinking they live in the greatest country in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But there is this other thing that I think kind of connects back to this early idea of, you know, when you hear a client using the same word or the way they're telling a story and there's this deeper level I think when you grow up, even with America being such a melting pot and, you know, all the chaos, but if you grow up and you're talking to another American, even if they lived in a different state, you still share this cultural experience that subtly informs the way you make jokes and the way you think about things and all of this etiquette and stuff that is kind of unspoken. And when you shift to another country, it's a very hard transition because no one can just say, ah, here's <laughs> here's 10 gigabytes of children's television, old commercials, parents and neighbors giving you disapproving looks when you did this thing that you can just download and then get with the program. And instead, you're kind of going, wait, why are they doing this differently? This is not how I'm used to to the, the rules of social interaction. Totally. There's definitely different rules. And also, since everybody has grown up with American media, they recognize our way of being because they've seen it so much but Uh, I don't recognize theirs you know so I kind mm. of I constantly feel kind of like fish out of water whereas like oh it's the American you know (laughs) like they all know what an American is (laughs) yeah and I don't know what the Swedish way is you know I've been told that Swedes like to practice their English, so that's why they always just start talking in English. But when they do it, it makes me feel like dumb, like I'm doing a bad job of speaking, you know? And Carl's mm-hmm. like, don't take it that way. They just want to practice their English. It just makes me feel that way. Like I'm trying to talk to you and you're like, 
<laughs> Forget it, lady. I'll just talk in yeah. English. That's how I take it. <laughs> so I think I'm a little bit right. I think Carl's a little bit rosy, but. <laughs> well, I had that experience when I uh, I used to be, you know, I lived in some Latin American countries and I was, you know, decent at Spanish, but not fluent by any means. And I was living in Texas. And if I went to a restaurant where they, you know, the waitresses spoke Spanish, but also English, and I tried to practice my Spanish, it was like one strike, you're out. Like, yeah, I'm going to ask my question in Spanish. <laughs> they're going to rapid fire back their answer. I'm going to be like, uh, what? And then they're going to switch to English. Like, you're <laughs> off. Whereas the few times that I would interact with someone who spoke zero English, it was great because they're like, oh, you speak a little bit of Spanish. Thank God. Okay, we can communicate. And if I didn't get what they meant, they're like, well, there's no other option. So we'll have to just keep working with this. But yeah, I think if someone speaks fluent What's English, the best like, way to learn if there's no other option. Well, I want to learn a little bit more. You've been um, for several years now doing a psychoanalysis in the occult conference. Yeah. Where did where did that come from? And and you know, what are the different ways that those two forces are interacting? That started. I did the first conference with Carl. I was originally going to do it with another analyst, and then I thought, well, we need to invite an occultist too. So I mm-hmm. asked Carl, who I'd met at Catland in 2013, if he would do it with us. And then I guess we were planning it in 2015. And I decided to plan it. I had just done a conference on systemic violence, um, mm-hmm. which ended up becoming a book. And uh, yeah, after studying, I mean, of course, we all hear about violence all the time. But like, you know, when you're making a conference, you like really like read and read and read and study and think about what you're doing for like the whole year before. And so we had yeah. like a little study group that met every Sunday where we basically read texts about violence. Mm. <laughs> just like really uplifting. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then it was great. We learned a lot. And I thought it was really important. I was like, I had just left basically the hospital. I'd been working in a hospital in Brooklyn in an HIV clinic um, in like Bed-Stuy, you know, and they like had no resources and it was just so depressing and how poorly the patients are treated and everything. Um, and I worked there for four years and I just left, but I felt like when I was leaving, I, like I didn't want to like forget about that work because it was so important mm. and like meaningful. And I really felt like it was helpful to be there. Um, but it just wasn't sustainable for me because they didn't have resources and they kept losing staff and they were just like, Vanessa can take these patients. <laughs> like, I'm only here three days a week. How many patients can I take? Can't see like a hundred people, you know, <laughs> like yeah. this is not working. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So I ended up leaving to kind of show them like, you can't just keep giving one person all these patients. Uh, you got to get more staff, but apparently they never got any more staff. That's that. So that's too bad. But anyway, uh, so I left that job and I wanted to kind of talk about systemic issues and like, you know, why is every poor black person diagnosed as schizophrenic? You know, like, this is fucked up. There's a problem here, you know? Um, So I wanted to kind of bring that to light. And I asked some good people that I knew, like Tanya White Davis and Steven Reisner, who I knew worked on these kind of issues a lot. Uh, and we made this conference at Fordham University um, and it was great, but I also felt like, you know, what did this do anything to talk about this violent system to these fucking psychoanalysts <laughs> like all yeah. have offices on the Upper East Side that are like, let's theoretically talk about violence. And then they go back to their little office and like have their nice little posh life. Like, right. They need to get better? their ass kicked. Yeah, did this help at all, you know? So I kind of felt deflated after that. And then I said, well, if like trying to talk about real serious issues with these people feels like it falls flat and doesn't go anywhere, like I'm going to do something fun and talk about magic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> at least I'm going to have fun, you know? So I decided to do this conference. And originally it was supposed to be at the Freud Museum in London, which would have been really awesome. Um, but it didn't end up working out because of per- interpersonal dynamics, nothing to do with mm. the Freud Museum, but with me and the person I was supposed to originally do, other analysts I was going to do the conference with. Uh, we won't give him any airtime. Um, yep. So anyway, it ended up just meeting me and Carl, which worked out perfectly. We ended up finding a gallery in London to do it at instead. We ended up getting like occult art to fill the walls. So we had like Val Denham and Genesis Purge and John Balance and Austin Spare and like all these amazing Charlotte Rogers, amazing yeah. occult artists. And that was really special because we like were doing the talks surrounded by this magical art. So we were in this like little like vibrating dome of magic, you mm. know, it was great. And we had the Scarlets there, Peter Gray and Alkistis Demek and Robert Ansel, Fulger, and just so many great people, Gary Lockman. And most of those people, I will say, were from Carl. You know, he knew them already. Yeah. Um, so thank you, Carl. He brought in basically the whole the whole gang of occult, <laughs> of occult yeah. Western occultism. And then I brought in um, a lot of people from New York, like uh, Jesse Hathaway Diaz, and like St. Khan and Kyra Mond and Demetrius Lacroix and Caitlin Floyzy and all these great New York kind of witches, people that were in, you know, Fudo and Kimbanda and Santeria. Um, yeah. And so we had like a great mix of, of like practitioners and everything. Pretty much everyone was a practitioner. And then some also wrote more theoretically and some talked more about their practices. And we made about psychoanalysis art and the occult because right. I felt like, I think because it was me just like, becoming public about it it like to me made things more palatable you know like mm-hmm. if i'm just talking about psychoanalysis and the occult it's like what are we talking about like esp you know and i, I right. was like but if we were talking about art then it's like when art's involved everything's okay you know even for like <laughs> normal normal muggle people you know it's like mm-hmm. oh they're an artist or oh it's art like somehow that puts it in this realm where it's like okay for them <laughs> where it's suddenly okay to look at a symbol and have something be abstract and think about what does that make you feel and what is it trying to say which yeah. is i think what psychoanalysis and the occult are doing <laughs> as well but yeah yeah and then and then i was glad that i ended up doing that because then like i said we brought in all this like magical art um so it ended up really being all three psycho psychoanalysis art and the occult and then since then and then carl and i ended up getting together at that conference that conference led to our marriage and Robert Ansel's yeah. marriage with Aisha, they met at the conference. Oh, how cool. <laughs> yeah. So two two weddings happened from that yeah. conference. It was a magical time. Yeah. <laughs> magical weddings. And then, yeah, we had the, the next one in Italy in 2019. And then we had the most recent one in Copenhagen in uh, 2022. And I think that might be it for us, at least for a long while. Unless everybody wants to come to Vimmerby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that could be fun. <laughs> yeah, the psychoanalysis Astrid Lindgren and the occult conference. Yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I think you could pitch that to the local tourism board. I think that'll be great. <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't be weird at all. But she, she no. definitely was a magical person. So you may we could it could they always have a theme based on where they're at. Like the first one was just psychoanalysis art and the occult, and it was in London, and it was then and the next one. Uh, was in uh, a castle in Murano, Italy called Brunenburg, which is where Ezra Pound lived and his daughter mm. and grandson still live there. Um, and so we made it about like modernism and like literature and po- poetry, modern poetry. We called it Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Psychoanalysis and 
uh, esoteric modernism. And then uh, the last one was in a cinema in Copenhagen. So that one was about psychoanalysis uh, and the magic of cinema. So yeah. papers focus. You don't have to have your paper in that theme, but like it's a topic if you want it. Kind of nice to have a, a theme to hold things together. Yeah, and you could do so you could do one of your beings to talk about like the magic of fiction or something because yeah. you create these whole worlds. And I'm starting to think, and I think Carl is too, that like that's kind of the greatest magic of all is like write, writing and inventing these kinds of worlds. Like look at like 100%. Lovecraft and all of his characters yeah. and then like that becomes a whole pantheon and then people are like live that, you know, <laughs> it's kind of amazing yeah. you can create things like that. For, for listeners who are slightly lost with what we're talking about, uh, Vimmerby, where Vanessa lives, is the is where Astrid Lindgren, who's from, who uh, wrote Pippi Longstocking and has a million other books that are bigger in Sweden than they are elsewhere, but, you know, is a kind of cultural hero. And I've been reading Pippi Longstrom with my uh, language teacher, and it's really awesome seeing what, like, this character just embodies this childlike way of magical thinking and... Uh, the, the book is mainly her and these two neighbor kids who have already been indoctrinated with the way things should be and, you know, the proper this and that. And so Pippi is this kind of like raw, anarchic, primal force of make-believe and doing whatever you want and kind of helping those uh, other kids sort of see the absurdity of some of their logic, um, even though her logic is <laughs> completely nonsensical in a really wonderful, surreal way. Yeah, she's like a non-socialized child. She hasn't been <laughs> yeah. to like the formal education system and taught how she, she should hasn't be. Been so she just does whatever. Yeah. <laughs> she's actually yeah, banned, like, I've learned, in a lot of countries because people, that places, people, they don't want people, little girls, to think they can do anything, basically. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big fear. Well, I think little girls can do anything. And I think in the spirit of doing anything and creating shifts, uh, let's come up with our spell today. So this is just something small that the listeners, wherever they are, can do, you know, maybe sometime this week to just make their reality slightly better. And whether this is pulled from your own personal experience and practice, or it's an idea from psychoanalysis, what's a little spell we can offer people? Well, we have to do cut-ups because I'm obsessed. I knew you were going to say (laughs) cut-ups. So for anyone who doesn't know, what are cut-ups? So, well, we can, I can show you a little bit because I always have a cut-up box right next to me. Um, and I'm doing them all the time. And so basically the simplest way we can do them is, um, like a Tristan Zara way. And he was the Dadaist from like the 1920s. And Mm -hmm. he invented these kind of poems that he called accidental poems, um, where he would take an article in the newspaper. You can take whatever you want. I think it's especially fun if you write it all, that you can cut up your own writing. Mm, Or mm -hmm. if you have authors that you really love, you can cut up their writing. Or if you end up getting into cut-ups like I am, you can cut up authors' writing or magicians' writing that you love and your own writing and mix it up and put it in a box. This is actually a box from a creature that I bought from Charlotte Rogers that she mailed me. And so the box is magical too, because Charlotte's magical. Um, And my box is filled... This has been my cut-up box for like 10 years, and it's filled with pieces of text. (laughs) And these are longer strips of text. Some of them have phrases. Some of them are cut from my writing. Some of them are cut from books. 
um, psychoanalysis, art, and the occult, basically. So what's what's funny is I have um, my laptop case. Uh, I'm I'm working on a book, and at one point I was trying to organize it in physical space rather than just docs and documents. So I kind of had collected all of my favorite quotes from it and then printed them out and cut them up. And I've just let those papers be loose in the laptop case to kind of charge them. So I've got I've got a bunch here as well. Perfect. <laughs> We can make a cut. We can make a cut-up poem together. Let's do it. Let's do so, it. So, guide me through it. So basically, Tristan Sarah would say that you cut out an article or take a page and just cut it up, or you can cut from different sources, like we said. He would cut out one paragraph, say, and he would mm. cut out every word individually. I don't do that. I cut out sentences or phrases and put sure. them all into a hat or a box. And then you shake it up and then you pull them one by one and you just lay it out as a poem and see what it says. And it always says something really uncanny because yeah. magic is like that. And we yeah. could do it sometimes when I have people with me. I'll make a collage and then I'll have them take turns drawing cut-ups from the box and putting Ooh, them down. Cool. And then we've made like a communal poem. So we could take turns doing one after the other until we're satisfied with our poem. Okay. How many do you think we should do total? Like three each or something? Sure. Let's do three each. All right. So I've just grabbed three. Well, I grabbed one to start. Okay. I seven because seven's a magical number for me. Perfect. All right. Mine says, busying themselves by psychologizing analytic theory in stitching up this gap. While normally we stumble into one moment after another, primarily concerned with how they satisfy our most immediate desires, magic and wizardry offer a strategy for moving into the next moment in a more compelling way. Unbehagen, a reference to Freud's Das Unbehagen in their culture, civilization, and its discontents. As we consider stories, I invite you to think about a new phrase, not true, but compelling. The artist who, the original announcement. There is no substitute for your own understanding of magic. There is no one else who can design a better, more meaningful, more impactful ritual on your behalf. You've got to do it yourself. Into five thematic divisions, propaganda, the occult, character portraits, nudes, and beautiful girls into crones, which offer scenes, some of which, such as his, commissioned a series on surgery through the ages, deftly combined frightful and erotic elements. Wonderful. Perfect. Well, I think we've cast a spell and also given people a way to do this yourself. So happy cutting, everybody. And thank you so much, Vanessa. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks, Devin. For more of Dr. Sinclair's magic, visit drvanessasinclair.net. And for more of the ongoing podcast-based psychoanalysis that this ritual is, has been, and continues to become, you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual, where I am always excited to share additional bonus material, thoughts and insights, and continue to cultivate a community. Because I think even though talking out into the void, facing away from your interlocutor has its advantages, there's also experiences that you can only find in community. So I invite you to participate in this ritual to put yourself out there, and together we'll see what wonderful new magic 
will weave. 